Hi, this is Jim Labano, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today, we have Mike Schultz. In addition to being president of Rain Group, he is a world-renowned consultant, speaker, and expert in sales training and performance management. The Rain Group has worked to unleash the sales potential of organizations such as Euler Packard, Bank of America, Oracle, Fidelity Investments, and many others. Mike has co-authored several books and has written hundreds of articles, case studies, and research reports in the areas of selling and marketing. His articles have appeared in Bloomberg, Business Week, and Inc. Magazine, and is often quoted by major news outlets. Mike has offered to share with us insights from his latest book, Inside Selling, Surprising Research and What Sales Winners Do Differently. Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jim. Mike, before we get in talking about your book, Inside Selling, given the fact you work with many sales forces, given the fact the work you do, I thought it might be beneficial for our audience for you to share with them your insights, no pun intended, on what is going on in the world of sales. Well, I think the world of sales, while it always took a lot of work to succeed in, for about 30 years or so, it was pretty stable. And it was stable in that classic books that came out in the 70s and into the 80s, like spin selling and solution selling and relationship selling, these books if you read them and you took in their messages and lived by them, you could succeed. But heading into the recession and then coming out of the recession, we've been in the sales training business for two decades. We used to get a lot of calls saying, we need sales training. And after the recession, we would get calls to say, we've had sales training and what we used to do would work. And now it's not working anymore. So I would say the state of the sales departments, the divisions, and as well the training and development and sales enablement folks that support them, it's a time of change and turmoil. And while change is difficult and it means that a lot is in flux, it's also really exciting because it's inside times of change that winners can really emerge if they can figure out the new dynamic of what's actually happening. Mike, what are some of the driving forces behind the changes that you're referring to? So I think part was the recession, and part was just what year was the recession. So if you go back even 10 years ago, even seven years ago, just before the recession was starting, you would still see in sales magazines and on sales websites that senior leaders don't use social media, and senior leaders aren't surfing the web looking for their ideas. Well, nobody would even think about saying that now because the people that were 28 and all over this kind of stuff in the year 2000 are now pretty old. And they're in (laughs) senior leadership positions, and they've lived on the web, and they consume information on the web. At the same time, the web has evolved into a much more sophisticated content world. It was a brochure world, and now it's a content world. 
So that was one thing that changed. The second thing that changed was fear. So even though you could make an argument the recession was in the 2008-ish kind of time, up through 2010 and 11, although the actual definition of recession, it was shorter than that, but the unemployment and the fear were still pretty high. And even some people say the economy isn't that good right now. And why they say that is because when people have that kind of traumatic event where they have such a fear of loss because they actually lost something or they were so afraid of losing something, that doesn't just go away. So two things happen. One, as it relates to the salesperson and how a buyer gets information, if you go back 15 years ago and you were a buyer and you wanted to buy something, you had to fly to a conference and get a big bag and shovel a bunch of brochures in and talk to as many sellers as possible. Then if you actually wanted to buy something, you had to call the company and ask for more information. And you would get connected to a person who they would require you to speak with them. Now you don't have to do that at all. But that was the life of a salesperson. The second thing, because now that the Internet has taken that, is that if you read articles about how to sell, you'll see all sorts of information that points to the seller to make the ROI case, prove the return on investment, show the impact. And sellers will do that. Not that they all do that well, but that piece of advice is out there. For every hundred times you'll see an article about that, you'll see maybe one article about reducing their perception of risk. So in our research, which led to Insight Selling the Book that we're talking about today, we found that attending to the buyer's fear of loss and their tentativeness around taking risks is a much more important thing for sellers to do these days. So based on those changes, I know you went out and did some research that led to this book, Insight Selling. So talk to us about the research you did for this book. Okay, so... What we did for the study is we studied a little bit more than 700 business-to-business purchases from buyers that represented $3.1 billion worth of purchasing power, and we've now spoken to a little over 300 buyers to get their sense and to get a feel of why they answered questions the way that they did and what their experiences were like with the sellers. We studied 42 factors. The factors were common pieces of advice given to sellers, that you should do this to sell well, or you should do that to sell well. We wanted to gather up the most common ones and figure out, well, you can't do 42 things, so which ones are most important? Then what we did was we studied the buyer's perception about whether or not the seller did these things. So we got a separation. We found that the winners of the sales did very different things than the second-place finishers. And not only were they different, they did them radically different. Now, I'm not talking about all six sellers that were involved in the sale. I mean, literally, first to second place was very different. I'm going to tell you the top three things that the sellers that win did differently. Number one is that they educated with new ideas and perspectives. You could almost just label that. They gave them insight. So the number one thing was educate with new ideas and perspectives. The number two thing was that they collaborated with the buyer. And when we talked to the buyers and we said, what do you mean by collaboration? And they said, they pushed my thinking. So that's another thing. They helped me find insight by taking a journey myself into opening my mind to learning new things, maybe coming up with ideas myself. The third thing 
was they persuaded me we would achieve results. Now, you can imagine someone on a mission inside of a company to get the senior leaders to do something. They're walking around with a presentation about how the ROI of doing something that they want to do is so huge, which is itself also insight. Like, we should do this. We should put this on our agenda. It's important. So all three of them related to just the idea of ideas themselves or the idea of spreading ideas that were important. So if you looked at the pinnacle of the pinnacle of the pinnacle, it was all about insight. And so that was the label that came out. You have that chart in your book. And I like the chapter heading that goes along with this list of 42 things. A diagnosing versus demonstrating understanding. Mm-hmm. Why is it that so many of our sales producers today want to do really demonstrating? I call it, yeah. you know, show up and throw up. Here's the features, here's the benefits, let's buy. Yeah, so that particular point in the book, and I think you're right, buyers don't want people to just pitch them. Right. But this one was about how we were all taught in the past that we needed to diagnose yep. the need of a buyer. When we talked to the buyers, they fell into two camps. One of them said is, if I didn't know why I was having a particular problem, I was fine with the diagnostic help. But more than half of the buyers would say to us, I know what's wrong. Don't patronize me by asking me six million questions to find out what's wrong when I'm telling you what I think is wrong. (laughs) So what both camps wanted was to make sure that the seller demonstrated the understanding of the need. So diagnosing was only important. It's not about throwing it out. It was only important when the buyer didn't know why something was happening. But if the buyer was pretty confident they knew why something was happening, what they wanted to hear from the seller after they describe it for a little bit, and maybe the seller asks a few questions, they say, all right, so what I'm hearing is that ABC is happening. The reasons that they're happening are one, two, three, and we know why because of this, that, and the other thing. And so if we can get these other two things done, it should create a much better future for you, and that's our task here. And the buyer would say, exactly, thank you very much for not spending three consultative meetings with me when 15 minutes around you getting it was all I wanted. Mm. So that was the difference. And I think this goes to, you know, a lot of people read a book and they just swallow it whole. I must diagnose. I must go to buyers and ask these 72 questions. Well, what you need to do is understand what diagnosis is, when it's important, and to use it like a tool. If you need a hammer, use a hammer. But if there's no nail sticking up, use a different tool. That was the thing about the diagnosis versus the understanding of my need. Thanks for joining in on the conversation. Our guest is Mike Schultz. We're talking about his book, Insight Selling, Surprising Research and What Sales Winners Do Differently. In addition to Mike sharing his expertise on selling, you can find other experts that have shared their own wisdom right here on BizTalk. They're available as podcasts on our website and cover business topics in the areas of recruiting, leadership, marketing, performance management, sales and sales management, and personal development. You can download these podcasts from our website, biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. Mike, we left off talking about inside selling, and at the same time, you point out in your book, there are two types of insight selling. Uh-huh. They are the opportunity insight and the interaction insight. Does that tie back to what you just said, or is that something different? 
No, it ties back to those top three things that sales winners do differently. Okay. So I'll give you an example. Assume for a minute I am the chief financial officer of a mid-sized business. I love my accountant for the last 15 years, and he's retiring. I really don't know anyone else at his firm, so I'm going to use this opportunity to interview three new firms to do our audit and potentially do some of the tax work of our senior people. If I bring in three accountants, what I want them to do is ask me questions about what I'm looking for in an accountant and what I liked about the past one and what I'm looking for in the future and if there's anything I want to change and to ask me what the business strategy is and to have them provide some thoughts and some insights, uh, maybe ask me some questions that have me think about what the strategy is because every accountant says, we won't just do your tax and audit, we'll be a part of your decision-making team, we'll be a part of your leadership team, and we'll help you have a better business. And so you're looking for people to push your thinking and challenge your strategies that might make you better. Now let's assume for a minute I'm working with my accounting firm, and every accounting firm that I know of any size has a consulting division. The consulting division has guys that said, if you could just let us in to your business and do an analysis of your P&Ls, for every dollar that you spend on us, we'll return $10 in cost savings and efficiencies. So if you spend 50000 on this project, I guarantee you will save you 500000 But no buyer wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I wonder if my accountant has a consulting service to help me figure out where the hidden profit centers are in my business. No, it's up to the accounting firm to proactively schedule a meeting and to inform the buyer, educate the buyer, that there's something that they might not know about that they should consider. Now, that could be a service that they don't know about or a product they don't know about that they should consider. It might be a change in strategy that they should consider. It might be a new best practice that they should consider. But everything that they bring to the table should actually get the buyer to say, huh, I didn't know that was true. I didn't know that was possible. That opens up new ideas for new opportunities for me to pursue. So that's opportunity insight. The other one where if the accountant came in and started you know, pitching me all about what accounting is and what tax is and what audit is, because I know what those things are. I don't need to hear about that. What I want is to have a conversation with you inside of a service or product that I already understand. I just want you to push my thinking and help me be a better decision maker. So there's really two types of insight selling. What I think you're saying is they both generate that aha moment just different ways. They generate the aha moment in different ways. Yeah. And in fact, even when sellers are practicing opportunity insight, they don't necessarily just go in and pitch. Mm. They might actually have a collaborative discussion around it, and that's actually a mistake. You don't want to just go in and pitch. And labeling anything about educating a buyer with the word pitch in it is a big mistake. But if you can get the aha moment either through pushing a buyer out of their comfort zone and having them, them think about a strategy or think about a plan of action that they're going to take and just have them question it, that's the interaction insight. It's just you and your great discussion and your great conversation skills. And the opportunity inside is literally saying to them, you should do this, without necessarily walking in and saying you should do this, but you should do this. And if you did, it will have a business impact. And they're both aha moments. And just listening to you, I have the thought that as a sales professional, you're probably 
running both of those plays, right? You're probably at sometimes doing opportunity insight, and other times you're doing interaction insight, correct? Yeah. So for uh, when we give speeches and when we do our research, I'll ask the question. The question is, are there things that your current buyers should be buying from you that they're not buying from you because they don't know about it? <laughs> and literally 95%, I did this yesterday, I had several hundred people on a webinar and we asked this question, 95% said yes. So what that is, is that there are opportunities that the buyer should be taking advantage of that they're not taking advantage of because of a problem of communication. It's literally just what's in your head isn't in their head. And that's the job of a seller. And that's where the opportunity insight comes in. But in every sale, you should be practicing interaction insight. You should be pushing the buyer's thinking. So let's say that you are just a lawyer who only does divorces. You cannot call a happily married couple and say, there's a great opportunity for you to work with me. All you have to do is decide to get divorced, and I'll get millions of dollars from your spouse for you. That usually doesn't work. They cannot really do much opportunity insight in that way for that service. All they can do is help the person define how they make decisions when they're in that process. And you can even imagine, never use the example of a divorce attorney, but someone's going through a divorce, they're oftentimes not thinking very straight, and it's the duty of a divorce lawyer to help you think logically and calmly when you might not necessarily be, so you can make the best decisions for your long-term future. And that requires them to challenge their current thinking. So they'll be doing interaction insight. Now, let's assume for a minute this particular lawyer is working with a business owner. And this particular lawyer, after the divorce agreement is settled and there's no more matter on the table, there's no reason they can't figure out how to contact that particular person to say, hey, let's have lunch and why don't I bring the partner in charge of our M&A practice because I know in our past discussions, you had your eye on a liquidity event in the next five years. They might be able to provide some ideas for you. Oh, okay. Well, now they're going to provide ideas for me. Now we're talking opportunity insight because they might share with me some things about selling my business that I didn't know that could excite me or inspire me. Mike, I want to go back to that list in your book, The 42 Factors Most Separating Winners from Second Place Finishers. You know, just because you have them listed in the book doesn't mean that someone could read the list and then be able to execute on those 42 things in the right order that you have them listed here. And I was just kind of curious, who is the insight salesperson? Meaning, who can execute on those 42 things? The person that can execute on insight selling, if you think about what insight selling is about, which is creating and winning sales opportunities and driving change with ideas that matter, that's our definition, you need to do a couple of different things. One, you need to be able to create sales opportunities because if you're just sitting back and waiting for the phone to ring, then you're not going to be able to do much opportunity insight because nobody's going to call you to talk about something that they literally can't even perceive of. Two, if you need to push the buyer's thinking in the interaction insight, you need to have a certain amount of assertiveness and you need to be willing to be comfortable with a certain amount of discomfort. You need to be a conceptual thinker because you really can't be particularly good selling ideas if you know you don't get them. 
curiosity is important for being an insight seller. Again, that goes to ideas. So you need to be interested and seek them out. You can't be seen as a source of insight if the tank in the brain isn't as full as it should be. You also have to have a sense of urgency because if you want to drive change and you are fine with the status quo and you're fine with things taking a long time, well, that's not particularly good for driving change. Another thing I would say is a performance orientation. You have to want to win. You have to be wired to think about the win. You have to be wired to think about return on investment because you can't inspire a business buyer to put something on their agenda that doesn't have a really good ROI. And if you don't think about ROI that much and you're not very good at building and communicating ROI stories, you're not going to be a very good insight seller. Now, by the way, I don't need ROI to sell granite countertops because even if I'm a a corporate buyer of granite countertops, the seller should just be showing me the damn granite and giving me the price and I'll decide how much I want to spend for what quality of granite. I don't need a business case on buying certain granite unless there's some you know, special sourcing where I can get deals or something like that, but that's not what we're talking about. But to sell an intervention, consulting, technology, financial services, I need ROI stories. Now, there's just another couple of things that are important for insight selling is that you have to have a certain amount of gravitas. You're not going to take business advice from someone who is 17 years old looks schlumpy, doesn't have any kind of schooling or degrees to their name, doesn't have much industry experience, doesn't have much subject matter experience, isn't particularly articulate, doesn't make very good eye contact, and is easily cowed when you push back on them. I mean, you need someone that you can look at and say, whoa, that person I just met, that's a serious person. That is a person that I want to be around. Now, I'll just make one more point about a good insight seller. And that point is emotional intelligence. If you are going to push back on buyers' thinking, if you're going to push them out of their comfort zone to help them make a better decision or to see something differently, you have to have emotional intelligence. There has been a trend in the last several years after the publishing of the book The Challenger Sale for certain people to translate that into being cantankerous and pushy and to do that fairly consistently. You certainly can have a little bit of missionary feel to pushing someone's thinking, and you certainly can play the role of debating with someone. But if you choose the wrong time, don't read their facial expressions, don't read their tone over the phone, and you do that at the wrong time, they're very likely to kick you to the curb and not talk to you anymore. When I was a young buck in business, I was working at a leadership consulting firm, a big one. I was working with a grizzled old consultant, and we were going fly fishing one day. And I asked him, what separates, in your opinion, after so many years doing this, the good consultants from the truly great consultants? He said, let me think about it. A couple hours later, we were standing in the middle of the river, listening to the cricket chirp as we were casting our flies. And he just said, without any prompting, the great consultants will say what they need to say to the client every day that could get them fired. But by the end of the day, have the emotional intelligence not to get fired. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that is true of the insight seller. 
Our guest is Mike Schultz. We're talking about his book, Inside Selling, Surprising Research and What Sales Winners Do Differently. Mike, a couple quick questions. First being, what is the biggest misperception about hiring salespeople today? The biggest misperception about hiring salespeople today? Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's that much of a today. Okay. I would say, but the general biggest misperception of hiring salespeople, or I would even say the greatest difficulty with hiring salespeople, is to tell the difference between the real deal and the articulate phony. Mm. Salespeople, especially those with any experience, should be able to get through a couple of calls, a couple of meetings, and come across as articulate and come across as a good fit. However, you only find out six months later that they didn't work that hard, even though they said they were going to, or that they weren't willing to prospect, even though that was clearly written in capital letters on the front of the job description, you must generate your own leads, or that even though they wore a great suit and they were fairly articulate and they wrote you a good follow-up email when it came to anything conceptual, putting together a proposal, it made no sense. So the biggest difficulty is telling the difference between the real deal and the articulate phony. Biggest misperception about training your sales force today? Biggest misperception about training your sales force today is thinking that putting them through a two-day program, you'll have them come out the other side as a really good seller. That is an important thing to do, put them through live sales training. But if you think about it as an event, and if the sales training sponsor inside of a company thinks about it to say, what sales training are we going to do this year when we bring them all together? That is not as good as asking the question in a different way. What will it really take to have our sellers performing as well as they could be performing and firing on all thrusters? If you ask that question, you will very quickly get into a discussion, not about quick two-day training programs, or a couple of half-day things here and there, you'll be thinking about a coordinated system of sales education. That doesn't, by the way, necessarily say you're doing more. It just means you're thinking about, who do I have? What do I need them to do well? And what kind of learning and development support do I need to do to help them do that well? And then, how do I know if they're doing it well? There are pretty straightforward answers to these questions. But don't think about training as let's do some training. Think about it as asking the question, what will it really take to have our sellers firing on all thrusters and reaching their peak potential? And then how does learning and development support helping them do that? And you'll find yourself with potentially the same amount of spend and potentially the same amount of energy for a much greater outcome. Thank you for that. I think that's the question of the day. So you're really looking at not necessarily sales training in essence of training as much as developing. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you think about it to say, all right, do I have people here for six months where I just want to pick a new training? Or is a good core seller going to be in their role for three or four years? Yeah. And if so, what do I want to do in year one, what do I want to do in year two for curriculum for these people? So by the time they're at year four, if they're the right fit, as you said before, if they're the right fit, they're way different in a planned and coordinated way than they were a few years earlier. 
they're likely to be very good if they stay in the role. And they're also, if you're coordinating it, perhaps they're just now ready for the next role up. If you're thinking about it in those kinds of terms, then you can get those kinds of outcomes. If you're not thinking about it in those kinds of terms, you'll get random outcomes. Working with your sales leaders today, Mike, the biggest challenge they face is what? I mean, most of them are challenged by, I think, the difficulty of the opportunity insight. I would say it's the greatest challenge and the greatest opportunity. So we tend to work with companies that are mid-size and larger when we work with companies in our corporate training. And they will say to us, as I said before, that there's so much that they could be doing for their existing client base that they're not doing for their existing client base because literally what they know about what they can do and what the buyers know there's just this radical difference. And we'll put in, whether it's serious strategic account management about how you expand and penetrate and protect the biggest accounts and go from 10 million to 20 million, or it's literally just a mid-sized consulting firm where they're doing a couple of hundred thousand with one client, but they think they have the opportunity to do 500,000. When they implement the programs after we help them set it up and do the training, They'll come back and say, I couldn't believe it. I had that meeting with them, and my client, who I've known for three years, said, oh, I didn't know you'd do that. That's actually pretty interesting. We've been talking about potentially doing something like that, literally because they didn't know that the seller company had the ability to help them succeed in a new area. So it's the greatest challenge and the greatest opportunity all at the same time. So, Mike, it's their greatest challenge, and at the same time, it appears to be an obvious quick fix to this. Can I just email my customers and say, here's four things that we do but we're not doing with you? I mean, is it just that simple to send them something and make them aware of the other stuff that you do? Yeah, so in some ways, there's something to that. If you just bring it up to them, clients don't want to be pitched. Oh, okay. They don't want to hear just about some capability. But let me position it to you like this. Think about it as a big tech service product integrator kind of company Mm -hmm. that I'll point to it at the end of how it might actually come out, but you'll see that you'd have to back up and do some things. That you send an email or do a call to your client and say, Jim, just wanted to let you know that we started talking about the ABC things at your company here at our office, and I was talking with Steve and Mary in these two divisions because they're both working at your company as well, and we just were talking about it over lunch. The conversation really kind of got involved. Next thing we knew, we were in the conference room with the question on the board, if we were them, what are the kinds of things we would do about that? Hmm. We ended up talking about it for a while. We even pulled in Greg from our consulting division to get some of his ideas, and we were kind of intrigued by what he had to say, some things that we hadn't really thought about. After doing this for about an hour, we realized, one, we don't know if these ideas are particularly good because only you being involved in the discussion could say that. And two, exactly to the first point, I'd be willing to bet that Jim would like to be here. So I'd like to make an offer for you. Mary and Steve and Greg and I would like to come out sometime in the next month and give you a sense of the kinds of things that we were talking about because I think you'll find the discussion really interesting. If we actually had a decent relationship, how would you reply to that? When can I be there? Yeah, sure. Come on out. Or even can you give me a quick sense of a couple of bullets, the category of things that you're talking about? And you can do that. They might say, yeah, sure. Or the next thing you know, you're in a back-and-forth seven email with, you know, starting to talk about the ideas right now. 
so to be able to do that, you can't do that on a lie. You can't just walk out and say, we had this conversation. You actually have to have that conversation. It's what we call internal value discovery and say, all right, let's have a meeting internally without the client, with all the right people in our company, to look at this account and say, where is the additional value we could actually add to them? That takes a process. That takes knowing how to do that, knowing which people should be in the room for that, knowing how to structure all that. It's also not something that busy sellers or busy sales managers just stop at 10 a.m. saying, let's have a meeting about some proactive thinking. No, they're trying to close the deal. They're trying to do that. It's hard work to be able to make this happen. The second thing is you then have to be able to lead a facilitated ideas discussion with a client, and that's not necessarily what most salespeople are particularly comfortable with. So they need to learn how to do it. Yeah. Okay, you're with the president of a company today. The one piece of advice you're giving them is what? If I'm with the president of the company, mm-hmm. after hire Rain Group? Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> after hire Rain Group. I mean, I think that it would be presumptuous of me to give a piece of advice to a president of a company that I didn't know or don't know what their situation is, but I would have them ask the question, should we be selling more with our existing team of our existing offerings without doing anything radically different, for example, like, you know, not opening up an office in China or something like that? If the answer is yes, to ask a follow-up question and say, What do you think that you need to do to unlock that sales potential? And if they're serious about it's actually there and they're really growth-oriented, they could find themselves with their own created interaction and opportunity insight about how to make more money with their existing people inside their existing company to their existing market. People just have to decide, do I really want to grow this? Our guest is Mike Schultz. We're talking about his book, Insight Selling. Mike, share with our audience your experience during the recession when people came to you and wanted to do sales training, and when is the best time to be training your salespeople? When we were in the recession, we had at the time a couple of other services besides sales training and sales consulting. We actually don't even do them anymore because nobody was buying a brand strategy because they said, well, I'm going to conserve some cash and maybe we'll look at brand strategy in six months. But everyone here should be selling more today. Why don't we do some sales training? So we actually had a little bit of a spike. So it takes an impetus to want to do that. Hmm. That impetus was a little bit of a crisis. We need more sales, so everyone should be going out and doing more selling. But the fact of the matter is six months before the recession started, the same opportunity was facing them to sell more. They had the same potential, even better potential, because they were selling against you know, looser, freer-flowing dollars and people willing to make investments to try to get some returns. So it was actually better opportunity before the recession to do exactly what they called us for. People just have to decide, do I really want to grow this? Do I really want more success? And if you want to do that, that's why I love our industry. Is you know, Sure, we're a, a business-to-business service provider, but in a lot of ways, we are career makers. I know that might sound a little cheesy, and it might sound a little bit you know, Tony Robbins, but the outcome of our work is people emailing us saying, 
I've you know, never sold as much, and I've never made as much, and I never made the President's Club, and this is really working. And it's selling in a way that makes me feel comfortable because it's honest and it has integrity and it uses my brain. And, you know, that's the, the sort of joy of being in a service business where, you know, as a you know, part consulting firm, we're not the kind of consultants that people fear, like, oh, the consultants are here, everyone's going to lose their job. No, people see us and, oh, the consultants are here to help us to succeed mm-hmm. even better. So just a joy. But the opportunity to sell more is usually sitting there underneath every president of every company's nose. They just have to put on their agenda, oh, maybe we should try to tackle this. How do sales professionals stay on top of their game today? Yes, we do a lot of sales training. It's essentially the core of the business. Now, when we do sales training... We often have folks that are newer or that are jumping into a different kind of position. And we also have folks that will say, I've been to this training, I've been to that training, I've been to this training, I've been to that training, I've been to this training. And consistently when you ask them, why are you here? They'll say, because I like doing this every year because it keeps me sharp. You just have to keep showing up. I know accountants and lawyers and people in technical professions that get frustrated when they have to do their continuing education credit kind of stuff. But there's a reason that these industries, there's a good thing behind it to say, if you're going to be practicing something that's really important, like a medical profession or pharmacy or even accounting or law, you should be fresh. And part of that is just continuing to invest in yourself and training. So part of it is how you keep yourself fresh. Just keep showing up. It doesn't mean you swallow everything whole, but you should be able to put more and more tools in your toolkit so you can help other people succeed and then, of course, help yourself succeed. The other thing that I would say is to get a coach. Even Tiger Woods has a coach. If you have the right coach, they will help you drive your own performance. There are some people that can go to the gym and just work out, and there are other people that when they go to the gym and they hire the personal trainer, they say, I've been trying to do this for six years, but once I got the personal trainer, it's finally paying off. And so the difference that the right coach can make for you is huge. You've been listening to our guest, Mike Schultz, and he is the author of Insight Selling. Mike, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Jim. I really appreciate it. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, or you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.